0: So that's roughly 50% more people in poverty identify as LGBT than non-LGBT and it's that it's all these kinds of little things that add up.
1: Welcome to the FI show where you get a behind the scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on John and David from The Debt-Free Guys, where they're going to talk about their debt-free journey, how they've turned and turned that into a financial independence journey, and also unique insights and perspectives from the LGBTQ community. But before we do that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man?
3: Hey, Cody. Just, uh, you know, recovering from all the Thanksgiving holidays. And, uh, you know, for me, Thanksgiving, the funnest part is always just all the family stuff. And Leslie's family always has like a big tradition of going out. This deer lease and staying for a couple days, which is kind of cool because you're really off the grid. Family from both sides are out there. And I talked my dad into coming down. And then I also cooked some recipes that my mom always cooks. So kind of brought everything together. And he's staying in town for like nine days. So we've been showing him around Austin a good bit. And let's see, the one kind of fi thing I did is I checked my email this morning. I saw I got a payout from selling a Home Depot coupon for $50. So very random, but I already get 10% off my veteran discount. So it was this random 15% off discount you get when you move to a new house. And I was like, well, that doesn't really help me that much because I already get 10. So saw they were doing pretty well on eBay. So I sold that for 50 bucks. And uh, that was my little win for the day. How about you, Cody?
2: Well, I just got to ask, did you make any Black Friday, Cyber Monday? You know, now it seems like a whole month of Cyber Deals <laughs>
3: purchases. You know, that's actually funny. I was I was talking to Leslie this weekend. So I think it's the first year I've ever not bought something on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever. But like you said, it's kind of like a whole month of things. So I did get like my security camera set up about 10 days ago. They ran it on a big sale and it ended up being the same sale that they ran it for on Black Friday. So we got some stuff in this time of the year, but not really a Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Definitely no going to the stores, none of that.
2: Well, I know as a tech guy, you'd be proud of me. It's refurbished, so it's kind of like FI. I didn't spend the full money on it, but I got a new MacBook Pro Mine was just becoming a little bit slower than I'd like it to be, and I literally make all of the money I make from my laptop, like it's my primary source of income vehicle. So I was like, you know what, I'll splurge a little bit, ended up getting a refurbished like mid-2018 MacBook Pro, but it has like 32 gigs of RAM, and it's really high processing power, so super excited about that. Finally, you know, it was $1,600, but I think it's going to be well worth it now instead of using this laptop that's kind of starting to crap the bed a little bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's how you make your money. I think that's a, a wise investment.
2: In terms of personal, not Black Friday shopping stuff, Thanksgiving was awesome. Definitely overate, overdrank, just too many calories in. (laughs) Back at the gym this week, working them all off. But it was great. We had Thanksgiving at Lauren's grandfather's house on Thursday. Then we ended up having like a Friendsgiving a couple days later. I'm actually working at the Christmas tree farm. Anyone who's been listening for a while knows that my uncle owns a Christmas tree farm. So every Christmas tree season, which starts the day after Thanksgiving, I am working hard basically pulling trees through what's called a baler. It's like the thing that puts the net around the trees and makes it a lot easier to get into your house. So my forearms are a little bit sore as we're (laughs) recording this. But yeah, now back to normal eating, not overindulging, but it was a lot of fun hanging out with friends and family. I agree with you, Justin, that's one of the best parts for me. It's just kind of reconnecting with people that I hadn't seen in a while. And obviously the food is an awesome added side benefit. Thanksgiving's definitely one of my favorite holidays. But Justin, that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called personal capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month
1: yeah cody one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden and this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have these can be loans these can be 401ks these can be hsas bank accounts credit cards they're all linked there the other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at the slash PC. That's the slash PC.
2: Alrighty, righty. So like I mentioned quickly at the beginning of the episode, today we have John and David on from the Debt Free Guys and the Queer Money Podcast. And it's interesting to hear that they both kind of started in the financial industry, and you'll hear this in the episode, but they weren't that good with their personal finances. And I see this as a recurring theme throughout my own life. The people that I've worked with in the past working in the finance industry, studying finance in school, financial prowess in the commercial finance industry does not always equate to good personal finance habits. So they talk about some of those early mistakes, getting into debt. They talk about a really interesting method that I had not heard of before called the debt lasso method. And then lastly, we get into some of the stuff that the LGBTQ community faces that people who aren't in that community might not even think about some of the legislation, some of the hardships and just different pressures and societal things that go into being part of a community that may face some unique financial situations.
3: One of the things I really loved about the episode is just how much thought and detail and kind of research they do. So these some of these circumstances and challenges that the people in the LGBT community face, like they really lay out how those dominoes fall where one thing happens early in life and that leads to something that happens later in life. So I thought that was really interesting. And obviously, you already mentioned that debt lasso method. That is a really neat one, a very tactical thing. We always love to give the listeners that. And we think this is going to, probably going to be an episode you want to share with some friends for some of these unique takes and methods. And you can share that and get the show notes over at thefyshow.com dot com slash debt free guys. That's thefyshow.com slash debt free guys. Take it away, John and David.
4: My family didn't talk about money. I, in fact, I remember distinctively. This is going to date me, but I distinctively remember riding in the front seat of the car with my mom, um, and it was a it was a Ford Pinto and we didn't have her seatbelts on, and I remember asking her, how much money do we have? And her first answer was, you don't have any money, and two, we don't talk about money. So that was my first memory about money, is that we don't talk about it. Now, beyond that, I remember, I do remember, it was at least a monthly basis, if not a weekly basis, I remember my, my parents sitting at the kitchen counter and paying their bills together. So they were, as a couple, they were very engaged with their money. I never lacked for anything, as far as I knew. So... Other than that, I didn't have a negative association with money, but we just didn't talk about money. And then suddenly, I graduate college, and the whole point of going to college is to earn as much money as you possibly can. But nobody tells you how to manage the other side of that balance sheet, and so I learned that the hard way when after I finally got with David. <laughs>
1: and David, bouncing that off of you, like, did you have a similar upbringing, or because it's always interesting to hear couples who maybe have different backgrounds, and then when they get together, those mindsets clash a little bit because they just had such different
0: upbringing. Right. Sure. My upbringing was a little different. When I was really young, my father had been in the military, moved back to the United States. I was born in Germany, and we moved back to the United States. My dad got a very well-paying job working for a company that built nuclear bombs. And so early on, things were pretty good for us. But then my parents became Jehovah's Witnesses, and my Dad quit his job because he couldn't work in the war industry and took a 50% cut in pay. And I was about six years old when this happened. Our family went from, similar to John, not really lacking for anything, to all of a sudden my sister and I were on school lunches. It was a constant reminder that we don't have enough money. Mom was making clothes for my sister mostly. And every time we went to the store to get something for me, it wasn't what I wanted. Just that kind of this, all of a sudden at six or seven, I started getting indoctrinated in this idea of scarcity. And um, I think piling on top of that, the religion also kind of made me feel like, you know, you can't have money being, you know, money is bad, it's evil, rich people are bad. All of that was kind of indoctrinated into me as well. And so I, for a long time in my life, I just kind of avoided money. Even when I had credit cards, I avoided the whole process of, you know, it was just constantly whenever the credit card balance would go up, I would spend to the max, right? And I wasn't good at managing all of that until John and I had our aha moment. And that's when I think it kind of smacked us in the face as to how many mistakes and lack of education we really had.
2: And before we get to the part where you guys meet each other and, you know, start dating and start talking about your finances, I just want to kind of paint the full picture, get more puzzle pieces in the puzzle here. What did income look like? Like, what were you guys doing for work? Were you working minimum wage jobs? Did you have a college education and you were making a bunch of money and maybe spending more money than you ought to?
0: After I left the church, I had moved back to Denver and I got my first full time job. I was making just over eight fifty dollars an hour. <laughs> That was actually a decent wage back then. This is 1996. So I thought I was making good money. Not really, but that was my first full-time job. And it trained me how to spend money. It didn't train me how to grow the gap, as Paula Pant always likes to say, and learn how to spend less than you make, right? So during that time period, I kind of just felt like I was constantly in that just sustainable mode i was doing whatever i wanted with my money i had money but i had started to work for a mutual fund company so i was starting to get surrounded by the money conversation and i learned one thing from that and that was to start investing in a 401k
1: and before we jump to john i'm just curious David, like, how do you make the jump from like the
0: 850 an hour to working at a mutual fund that was the mutual fund company oh oh wow right so i was basically a glorified data entry person i was back <laughs> office just basically forms coming in and doing all the paperwork and stuff like that uh, and that was that was what financial services companies were paying back then and they still do they pay very for, for 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 general office positions they pay very low wages your financial advisors are the ones who are making three four five times that amount of money but the people who support everything are the ones who are getting gypped, right?
4: (laughs) Yeah, so for me, um, I did get a college education, and about a year after I got my degree, I moved out to Denver. And at the time, I was working for a retail company. And I was making really good money, over $50,000 a year. This was in 1999. But the problem was I was working like 80-hour weeks. It was ridiculous how many hours I was putting in. About 2000 is when a lot of people in financial services, they kind of call that time frame sort of the market storm because... The stock-com bubble was going crazy. Everybody was making money left and right, regardless of what they invested in. And financial services companies couldn't hire people fast enough. Well, fortunately, one of the kids who worked for me at my store, he came in one day and his mother had told him to let me know that Charles Schwab was hiring at that time. And if I was interested in getting into financial services, she'd be happy to make a recommendation for me. Then I thought at that point, you know, I'm working eighty hours a week. This is ridiculous. It's a decent job, but I don't want to end up working that much all the time. So I took her up on that opportunity. And at that time, they were literally hiring anybody. So, I mean, I went in with flip-flops and uh, cargo pants. My hair was long and shaggy at the time, and they still let me go on the phones. But I was just doing like customer service stuff, right? Nobody could actually see me. I took a huge pay cut when I left retail. But I was able to, over time, I was able to scale my salary up. But I was spending beyond my means as soon as I got a job. I mean, as soon as I went out to Denver, I sort of had this naivete belief that I deserve all sorts of things. And I've got this degree, I've got this job, I should be able to stop living sort of the college dorm lifestyle, right? So I should have pictures that are actually in frames hung on the wall and not with sticky tack. And I should have a a bedroom set with a duvet. I didn't have a duvet up until that point in my life, right? And so I thought I had to have all these adult things. And when I moved out to Denver, I had a $5,000 surplus in my savings account that I got from graduation. Within less than a year, I had $25,000 in credit card debt. So, completely went the other direction. And I racked all that up just from making stupid purchases, living way beyond my means. So,
1: it sounds like you both ended up in financial services jobs. Does this mean that you end up working at the
0: same place? Is this how you met? Eventually, that's not actually how we met. It's very cliche. We met on the dance floor at a gay bar, but we both were (laughs) in relationships with other people at the time. So, our friend group just kept on bumping into each other and for whatever reason, at one point in time, we both were a single. And that's when we started spending more time together uh, and eventually got together, moved in together. And the rest is history. That was 18 (laughs) years ago.
4: (laughs) We were both in financial services, but at one point I brought him over to Charles Schwab. So there was a period of time that we did work together. And what was interesting is at that time, Schwab had like three different buildings on the Denver campus, and there were about 5,000 employees in Denver.
0: Three, about 3,000. 3,
4: so we just thought, you know, we probably not see each other any more than we do now, right? The only thing that separated us was a media center. So there was my cubicle, a media center with a fax machine and copy and all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm dating myself. And then um, he was on the other side of that. So we, neither of us could go to the bathroom without each other being able to see when each other was going to the bathroom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of all the places to be, we were right across the hall from each other, basically. <laughs>
2: So, from two guys who meet each other on the dance floor to becoming a couple, and I know something you talk about quite a bit is like navigating those difficult, those initial money conversations. Cause a lot of spouses, a lot of couples, when they get together, it might not be years until they bring up, you know, some of that financial baggage that they might have accumulated along the way. Could you talk about like what that was like for you and, you know, how other couples who struggle with that can bring up that credit card debt or that mortgage debt or those student loans that they might not want to talk about right away?
4: So I think it's interesting that we both did find ourselves circuitously in financial services. And I think the assumption is that, well, at least over time, you, you must have learned something that you applied to your life. And I think I even had that assumption, right? So when David and I finally actually got together, we didn't talk about our financial situation until about a year and a half after we started dating, which is about a year after we, we moved in together. But up until that point, we just figured that, well... I mean, I know I'm a miserable mess with my finances, but surely to God, he can't be as horrible with his finances. He must have applied some of this theory to his own financial situation. Each of us thought that the other was just doing better. And so it was kind of a, like David said, it was a completely aha moment knowing that, oh my God, on so many different levels, we are the exact same person and our finances were the exact same thing. We were in financial services. We, we weren't more inclined to talk about our finances sooner than maybe we probably should have. Uh, we weren't managing our bet, our money better because we knew better. There's just a lot of hypocrisy going on up in our lives up until that point. And I think that there's this perception that, well, everybody in financial services, they know all the tricks of the trade. And a lot of people in the industry do know the tricks of the trade, but having worked in compliance for so many years in financial services, so many financial advisors have filed for bankruptcy and have liens against their homes, and they're struggling as well. So it's not the layperson who's struggling by themselves. I think for most people, the first time, unfortunately, that they talk about money is when things get bad, when things get precarious. And that was the case for David and me. We we finally, things weren't going in the direction that we wanted them to go. We finally admitted to each other what was going on in our finances. Then we were utterly depressed. And unfortunately, that's a bad place to start the conversation is in that negative space. The conversation can actually start in a very vague and light way on the first date. We always encourage people to first focus on the fun stuff, right? So obviously you don't want to Ask your first time date, you know, hey, what's your income or uh, how much are you investing each, week? whatever, right? But you can kind of see like how are they interacting with money, right? Are they using a debit card? Are they using their phone? Are they using cash? If that anybody still uses that, you can kind of just kind of start picking up those messages from them over the first couple of dates. But then focus on the positive and and the fun things that you want in life. And you're kind of that's why you're doing your initial dating anyway, right? To see if you have things in common. What do you hope to achieve in life? What are you working towards? Do you want to have a house with children in a picket fence? Do you want to travel the world? Focus on those big, fun things. And then as you get deeper into the relationship, then you can start to back into it and say, okay, well, if we want to have these big goals in life, how actually are we going to achieve that? How can we reverse engineer that to make sure we achieve that? And at that point, it's more appropriate to say, okay, well, to be fair, we have X amount of debt. Maybe this is one of the things we need to overcome first.
1: And David, I wonder when this moment happened, when you kind of start sharing with each other, your, your financial situation I could see it kind of going two ways. it being been a little bit of, you know, scary because it's like, oh my goodness, this person is also in debt. But I could also see it being a relief where it's like, hey, you know, I've got this thing I've been hiding that I'm scared to show anyone. Oh, you've got the same thing going on. Oh, that's a relief. Like I thought you were going to like judge me for being in this kind of bad place. So I just curious if you could kind of walk me through where your mind went
0: and what that moment was like. I say this, fortunately for us, we were locked in a car going about 65 to 75 miles an hour when this conversation happened. So it wasn't like either one of us could get into a fight, open the door and bail on the conversation, right? We couldn't leave. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's how you do this, but it actually worked out well for us because... Really, the way we started talking about money was we ended up going to the mountains of Colorado to visit a friend of John's, fell in love with this cute little ski town. And we said, This is a perfect place for us to have a vacation home, right? We love this place. Let's go up here. Let's take our family up here, our friends up here. Let's have this vacation home, right? And so we had this whole fun conversation, stopped at a realtor's office. We're heading out of town and we start to have the conversation, flying down the road 65, 75 miles an hour. And I don't know how it happened, but somewhere along the line, one of us kind of said, "Can we afford this?" And you know, we went from this conversation of buying land and building a modern mountain vacation home to buying a condo to renting, doing an Airbnb type thing during the ski season. And by the time we got home, we looked at each other and we said, "Whoa, we're we're financial messes." And the reality was, as we pulled up in front of our place. We opened up the door and walked down a flight of stairs into a basement apartment. So here we were, two guys in our early 30s, living in Denver, both working in financial services, making decent money. We weren't making great money, but we didn't own a home. My car was a piece of crap. (laughs) And John had a new car that had been partly financed on a credit card. So (laughs) here was the kind of financial mess that we had put ourselves in, but we had been Two years in a row, we went to Winter Music Conference in Miami to party up with our friends. We went on ski vacations. We, every Friday night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it was going out, happy hours that went way longer than an hour. It was just, we were living the YOLO life before there was the definition of a YOLO life, right? Our credit card balances and our bank balances showed the YOLO life that we were living way beyond our means, right? There's a recent statistic from Credit Karma that says that 47% of millennials have gone into debt trying to keep up with their friends and through experiences or buying things. And that's exactly the lifestyle that we were living. And so when we first started to have the conversation, I think being in the financial services space, we just said to to ourselves, we're never going to get to the place that we always are coaching and encouraging people to get to if we don't make some changes in our life. And that was the beginning of the, what is it we're going to do to reverse this from a negative net worth to a positive net worth?
2: And I'm going to spoil because I want to ask a vocab question. So I know you guys paid off. I think it was $51,000 in a pretty short amount of time. It was incredible. Using the debt lasso method. A lot of people might be familiar with the debt snowball, the debt avalanche as popularized by Dave Ramsey. But debt lasso is a new one to me. So I'd love if you could share like that journey, how it worked for you and how other people can use that same tactic and strategy.
4: Yeah, for sure. So when we decided to pay off our credit card debt, we, you know, we wanted to reach our goals. Our first thing was that we had to overcome that $51,000 in debt. So we did our homework and we found the snowball method and we found the avalanche method. And David's a master of spreadsheets. So he was running all the numbers. And in either of those processes, it was going to take us anywhere from five to eight years to pay off our debt. And I. I'm a super impatient person, <laughs> and David can only handle, handle so much stress. So we're like, what is the variable that's making this so challenging? Why has why, why it got to be so hard? And that's when we realized, well, it was paying at the time, you know, some of these credit cards was 22% or more interest rate, and that's what's, what's slowing us down. So you get better results when you ask better questions, right? So we've asked ourselves, the, the, the main question was, how do we get rid of this high credit card interest rate? Is there a way to do that? At that point, we didn't know that there was that was an option. And so that was kind of w- w- how the debt lasso method was born. And the whole idea with the, 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 the whole idea with the debt lasso method is to pull all your credit card debt into as few locations as possible with the lowest interest rate as possible, ideally zero percent, which can oftentimes be achieved with zero percent interest rate credit card balance transfers. At that particular time, there were myriad of options about, out there for zero interest rate credit card balance transfers some with durations as long as 21 months. And so we thought, well, hey, even with the, the transfer fee, if we actually focus on putting as much money towards our principal as quickly as possible, we can overcome that three $500 transfer fee.
0: I'll add here that it's not just doing the balance transfers because you can balance transfer for the rest of your life and just keep kicking the can down the road. So that the debt lasso process actually has five steps to it. And the first one is to commit. A lot of people don't commit to sending a specific amount or more to their credit cards every month. They don't turn it into a bill that they have to pay. So the first piece is that, that commitment of turning it into a bill and paying a specific amount or more every month, along with not adding any more to your cards. The second step is to get that snowball type win, right? Go, if you have a credit card that has a low balance on it, get that win. If you can pay it off in one or two months, get that win. After that, then start doing the lasso process of trying to figure out where you can get your lowest interest rates. Then automate things so you don't have to think about them so much and then monitor it. Because as you pay things off... As your balances go down, you're going to want to make adjustments. As you get more money, as you get a bonus, as you get a tax return, all that kind of use every single opportunity. A lot of people just get into this. Okay. Yeah, I'm paying my debt off. It's going to take me 10 years. And then they just kind of set it and mentally forget it. And then they let their balances continue to creep up.
1: And David, when you ran these projections, it sounded like you thought five to eight years with the other methods, and then you kind of built your own method, hopefully to supercharge and go a little faster. So what did that turn into in reality as far as timing?
0: A little over two and a half years. I think it was two years and 10 months is what it really took us. And the reality was with $51,000 in credit card debt, And the 20% interest, average 20% interest we were paying, every year we were adding $10,000 to the balances of our cards because of that interest. So that was the part of the big thing that really sped it up is we had all of that money that we had been sending off to the banks, those credit card companies, and it was instead used towards our principal. And that's why I'm not a fan of The snowball or the avalanche method, because you're still paying those payments to the bank. So you gotta stop doing that if you want to expedite the process.
2: And John, so just to get a little bit tactical here, for someone who's listening who's like, this sounds like an awesome method for me. How much can you transfer over? Like when you get a zero percent balance transfer credit card, like can you throw fifty one thousand dollars on one card? (laughs) Are you spreading this across multiple cards, or just like how does that look like when you go and kind of figure out your game plan for this strategy?
4: yeah I think maybe Jeff Bezos could do a fifty one thousand dollar credit card transfer, uh, but not many people <laughs> have that available to them and there are a couple of variables in that equation. One is what is your credit score? Two is uh, what are the offers that are available at that time? you know during the pandemic, there were very few offers that were available. Things have gotten back to normal now, and then also, how much debt do you have to transfer um, oh, and then I would also add on top of that how many different credit cards do you have that you have balances you would have to transfer um, so depending upon what all of that comes to, it may or may not make sense to, or may not, may or may not be possible to transfer all that over to one card. The idea is to have to do as few transfers as possible, of course. And in mine and David's case, what do we end up doing? Two or three?
0: You ended up doing three because he had more debt than me, but I took longer to pay mine off because he was more diligent at actually following the method. That's a whole <laughs> other topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so
4: we did end up doing a net of five transfers. Right. A,
0: a, Part of what it was is that, when we started paying our debt off, this was 2006. And that was before the financial crisis, when everyone was just throwing money at anybody who wanted to borrow it, right? So it was a little easier for us to get, I think one of the balance transfers that I I did was $11,000. And so that was a huge chunk of money to move over from 20% credit card over to a 0% credit card. And so Those may not be as available today, so you may have to do more of them. It also may be the opportunity to say, Are there some low interest, not necessarily zero interest, but low interest opportunities?
1: And just out of curiosity, like, have you ever done the research on why it is that one company would be willing to take on the debt of another, or like why that other company is allowing you to move it? Because it seems like, in my mind, you got one company charging 20%, the other company's charging you zero. They
0: must be paying the first company 20%. And why in the world would they do that? I think it's really a land grab, right? It's a land grab for the money that people have. And the the truth of the matter is the vast majority of people who do a balance transfer don't pay much towards that balance. And then all of a sudden those high interest rates hit right? So I get a 0% balance transfer. And then I look at the fine print and the fine print says that if I miss a payment or when the pay- the, the promotional period is up, that rate's going to go to 26%, right? So here I was paying 20%, but now it's going to jump to 26. Those banks, those credit card companies are hoping and praying. And the reality is, is that the vast majority of us are... I don't know whether it's stupid or lazy or yoloed into <laughs> disbelief that we're going to pay it off. Right. I mean, that's why I mean, literally during the pandemic, we saw credit card balances go down because people, they couldn't go out and spend their money. Right. Well, now it's way above where it was when the, we were in the middle of the, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we have more credit card debt today than when the pandemic began. And so people just figure out, oh, they get lulled into this idea. I'll just pay it off someday. And I think
4: the other thing is that I would say it's, it's like a loss leader that the banks aren't losing on. I mean, there's so many people who are paying high interest rate credit card interest at all of these different banks. Um, they can they can afford to give up, you know, $10,000 to one household because they're they're making money in that handover over fist anyway. And they know that you're likely not going to pay it off. So you'll probably end up reimbursing them 10 times anyway. It's the same as with
0: with the rewards. Uh, yeah, Amer- Americans paid a hundred and forty billion dollars in interest rate and credit card fees in 2017 and we know that debt is way higher than that today so i mean just think what, what would happen if our co- economy even had half of that infused back into the economy having an extra 70 billion dollars that's almost an extra thousand dollars per household to be able to spend during the year Christmas would be better. Birthdays would be better. People's mental health would probably be better. All all those things would be better if we could just figure out how to pull out the needle from the vein. Right. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, that
2: is an astronomical number. I am flabbergasted, quite frankly. Yeah. I do want to ask and, you know. You have this amazing story where you figure out this method, the debt lasso method, which I just think is such an awesome name for that. I can just picture it, lassoing all the debt and squeezing it to one little thing. Yeah. When did you kind of transition from, you know, consumers, people actually, you know, getting the financial content, you're trying all these different methods to creators, to helping other people who are struggling in that same situation out of this credit card debt or out of whatever dire financial position they
4: might be in? That's a fun question. And the reason is because we were so stupid. (laughs) So towards the end of paying off our debt, we thought that we have a unique process here. And uh, we're unique in a way, at least from what at the time was on television and radio, in that not only are we in financial service and we had all that theoretical knowledge, but now we just went through a really rough, big, tough patch and we have that practical knowledge. So we thought that combination was actually something that we could use to help people. So we thought our grandiose idea was that we were going to write and publish a book. And everybody knows that after you publish a book, Oprah Winfrey invites you onto her TV show. She talks about it. <laughs> Suddenly you're rich. You're helping millions and millions. You get of people. a book.
0: You get a book. And you yeah, get a book. <laughs> life is
4: amazing. So fortunately for us, we actually did commit to writing the book. We wrote the book. We shopped it around to 30 or so different agents. Got 30 or so different rejection letters. But one of those rejection letters said, You guys have a compelling story. You have a great strategy. Your problem is, is that you don't have a platform. We were stupid because we thought the book was the platform, but that's not. He said, you need a radio show, you need a TV show, you need a blog, or a podcast. At that point, we didn't know what a blog or a podcast was. Those were new words to us. And we thought, well, getting a radio show and we're getting a TV show seems a little bit uh, impossible, at least right now. So let's look at this blog or podcast idea. And we found a blog. And so we, um, about the time that we published our book, we launched a podcast called Debt-Free Principles. Website website called debt-free yeah, principles different principles. shortly after that we we're like "Well, this is sounds pretty sterile and who would go to that website so that's when we became the debt-free guys and that was our long circuitous path becoming <laughs> debt-free guys <Right.
1: laughs> and as you transitioned to becoming more content creators did you hold on to all those principles because i mean i guess that's one thing we didn't really talk about and we talked about the methods you use to get the debt down as far as moving you know moving interest rates around but we didn't really talk about like how you changed your mindset around money and your spending habits is that something you were able to hold on to after you got out of debt and and really make a part of your long-term lives or is it something that once you got to that point you're like hey we learned this great thing we can teach people about it but that life's not for us
0: we paid off our debt and we coach encourage people to do something called milestone rewards to reward yourself along the way so that you feel like you're excited that you're working towards something. Well, our milestone reward of finishing everything off was a trip to Mexico for John's best friend's wedding. So we had saved up enough cash and we went on this vacation. We went there and had a blast. And that was kind of the capstone to our three-year time period of paying off our debt. And then I think, right after that we came back from vacation and we were kind of super excited about we were going to be able to get back to our old lifestyle and we did and so about a year later we had six thousand dollars in credit card debt again so we learned some things and then we made some mistakes and the mistakes we made were the mental mistakes of what Was a habit needs to stay a habit if you want to have that continue for progress So we started to then go back and really reincorporate those things into our lives It was really kind of focusing on and we did this earlier on it was What do we really want our lives to look like being intentional about our lives? Are our lives going to be Sunday brunch with the guys on having mimosas every sunday is that what we wanted you know we want to look back on our lives and say yeah i was the brunch guy right or did we want something else out of life and so then we came up with kind of the three things that were most important to us and we really focused on our time and energy on that saving for retirement and that's why we're retirement millionaires today is because we kept that lifestyle living that lifestyle as if we were still in debt And shifting all that money over into investing in our retirement accounts. And then we love to travel. And we didn't want to come back with a credit card hangover, right? So many people go on vacation to de-stress. They come home. A month later, they get this bill in the mail and they're like, shit, that was a nice vacation. I need another one, right? And so I think that happens to so many people. We didn't want that to happen. And so that became our next focus was we would save money to be able to take the kind of trips that we wanted to take. So we spent 30 days in Australia and New Zealand in 2012. We spent 30 days in Ireland and Spain in 2018. And right before the pandemic, we just came back from spending three months in Spain. We did all of that with cash because we set aside the money. And then the last thing is John and I are very dedicated to recognizing that there are a lot of other LGBT people who are living or live the lifestyle that we used to live. And we want to help them cross over to the other side.
2: <laughs> so as you start becoming content creators, you're putting out this stuff, you become the debt-free guys. I know I actually listened to at FinCon, your presentation about like how important niching down was. And I remember you guys were talking about, you were looking around, and you're like, there is nobody really in the LGBTQ community creating money content. Like there was just you guys didn't really have any competition when you first started out, or maybe I'm mistaken. And maybe I just haven't discovered those creators yet.
0: Susie Orman wasn't, <laughs> <She> wasn't out. <laughs> telling, she, she was still hiding behind whatever that was. She was that for Susie.
2: <laughs> she was hiding behind her facade. But, yeah. you know, you guys niched down. You started kind of taking over and giving these people kind of a lighthouse, a beacon, showing them that there was people like them, like who were crushing money and becoming retirement millionaires. I'd love to hear, you know, we only know as much as we don't know, Justin and I, what some of those like, differences are and the money pressures, whether it's societal pressure to spend more money to impress people or legislation that might make certain things difficult when it comes to setting up retirement accounts and you know, transfer of assets upon death. I know there's like, a whole world that I'm not too familiar with, but hoping you can enlighten us in our audience.
0: Yeah. John and I have spent a lot of time not only looking at the data but having conversations with the people that we coach and people in our community. And there are some differences that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about that affect LGBT folks. One of the things you did bring up is the whole legislation and tax issue. Literally, it's, it's been less than 10 years that same-sex couples have been able to get married. So that meant decades before, there were couples that were together that were not able to take advantage of the over 1,000 financial laws that are in place that provide tax benefits for people who are couples. So now we're starting to be able to take advantage of those, but it's also part of the reason why you see a lot of older LGBT folks who were not in committed relationships and now are living single and they have all of the financial responsibilities and didn't have the financial synergy of being with somebody. I hate that word, but it was the appropriate word. (laughs) (laughs) But for a lot of LGBT folks, there's micro opportunities that they miss out on very early on in life that can set you up for a very different financial future. And we talk about, especially in the financial independence space, about this whole idea of making those changes in life early on so you can take advantage of that compounding effect, right? Right. Well, there's a lot of compounding things that happen at very early on in a lot of LGBT folks' lives. For example, a lot of LGBT kids, especially pre, I would say, the most recent centennial generation, there are a lot of kids who live double lives, which meant that they were spending some of their own money to try to live a lifestyle that was what they wanted for their friends and their LGBT community, while living a different lifestyle for their parents and at home. Or this is a shocking statistic that we cannot understand and get our head around. But 40% of homeless youth, homeless youth identify as LGBT, which means there's a massive number of kids out on the street who have left home because their parents do not support them and who they are. And we know what happens when you live on the street it's harder for you to get an education, it's harder for you to get a job. It's harder for you to have a sustainable lifestyle, and oftentimes you succumb to some of the vices of the street, and that is and has had an impact on our community. But then you look at the kinds of things that even supporting kids uh, supported kids get, that maybe si- they, that they don't get, that their su- siblings might get. You might have kids who whose parents will pay for their straight kids to go to college, but not for their queer, their queer kids. Or the queer kid moves out and they're off on their own, but the other kid moves out and mom and dad help fund paying for the down payment or their, their mo- first month's rent on their apartment or paying for their cell phone or these kinds of expenses. If you've left a home where your family does not appreciate or support you, All of those financial obligations that your parents may be helping your siblings with, they're not helping you with, which means you've got to cover those yourself, which means oftentimes you're living paycheck to paycheck, if not worse. I think one of the other ones that is one that can really have a big impact on folks' lives is same-sex couples getting married, uh, especially older same-sex couples getting married, people who are, say, 35 or older. If a same-sex couple who's 35 decides to get married and they don't have support of their family, let's say their wedding costs them $25,000. Over that 30-year period, if that $25,000 was paid for by, a fa- by family members like many people do, and it was put into a retirement account, it would be worth roughly between three hundred dollars and $475,000, depending on typical growth rates, right? So here you have same-sex couples who paid for their own wedding because they want to get married and want to show off to all their friends, because we do love to show off to our friends when we get married, right? They are basically pulling the rug out from underneath themselves and the opportunity to have a retirement, a, 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 a comfortable retirement. And so we do see a lot of LGBT folks who just all throughout their lives are kind of always at this either just barely sustainable or just underneath barely sustainable 23 percent of lgbt folks live below the poverty line versus 15 percent of the general population so that's roughly 50 percent more people in poverty identify as lgbt than non-lgbt and it's that it's all these kinds of little things that add up and that's why john and i have become so passionate about it to try to educate our community that we can make some changes and early the earlier we do it we can live comparable lives to everyone else
1: well i think the like the studying that you guys have done is really interesting i mean i love all the statistics that you're throwing out and the the thoughtfulness of like you know this is what people aren't thinking about because obviously you know like we said this this is not you know my and cody's like expertise we we wouldn't never think through that lens so i appreciate like how diligent, like you're thinking through it and how all these dominoes go into affect people later in life. John, when, when you do some of your analysis, I'm curious, because I know coming out of the pandemic, there were certain groups that were affected more strongly during the pandemic than others. Is there any of those similar things that maybe we wouldn't think about that impacted the LGBT community more during the pandemic than everyone else?
4: Yeah, I think that anytime you see something going on in the economy and you wonder who's struggling the most because of this, It's always those who are most disenfranchised all the time anyway, right? People of color, women, LGBTQ people. And David knows the statistic better than I do about who's affected by, um, uh, how the LGBTQ community was affected by.
0: Yeah, there was a data point that came out uh, late last year that 65% of LGBT individuals who were surveyed had somebody in their household that either lost their job, was furloughed, or had their hours cut during the pandemic. Versus less than 40% of the general population, right? So here again, there's a 50% more of those folks are being affected. But what it really speaks to is the fact that there are so many people in our community that have chosen to work or have been forced to work in the service sector, in restaurants, in hospitality, in bars, in these kinds of services They're working in services that during the pandemic, a lot of them, very similar to Hispanic and African-American individuals, they are the primary supporters of these service industries. They had their jobs pulled away from them and didn't necessarily have the financial support and wherewithal that a lot of other families had to be able to weather that time period.
2: One thing, one idea, I guess, that I read on your blog that I thought was quite interesting, and it seems like it has even more of an effect on the LGBT community, was this idea of compassionate capitalism. You guys had a post on your website that I read through, and just, I hadn't really heard that terminology before, and I hadn't really thought of, like, the direct effects it had on a community like yours. So I'd love if you could talk about, you know, tell the audience, one, what that means, and then two, kind of how that can help people.
4: Yeah, so we Dave and I have been struggling for the last several years. Um, you know, we were from financial services. We we're capitalists. We, we, we support capitalism. I don't think that capitalism is the perfect economic system, but I think it's the best thing that's available. So one of the questions we started asking ourselves was, why is there this acrimony between capitalism and many people in the LGBTQ community? And so we've done a lot of research and paying a lot of attention to what people are saying. And I think right now there's a perversion of the definition of capitalism. I think all the politicians and all the more more powerful people than us are telling us that we live in a capitalist society and we should all just be happy with it because it's the best thing out there. But in reality, we're not living in that capitalist society. I think what we've evolved into today is a combination of autocratic and plutocratic society. And so there are a lot of people at the high up who are making money hand over fist without doing anything while the middle class continues to get squeezed more and more and more. It was up until about the mid '80s that, for the most part, wages would keep target or go in tandem with GDP. But then, about the mid '80s, that started to deflect precipitously. And so, GDP, especially now, right with with the inflation problem that we have, is inflation is skyrocketing, and wages just aren't keeping up with it. And a lot of that is because more and more and more focus is being put on with complete disregard to workers, the middle class, all of that more and more focus is being put on shareholders. Way back when when our founding fathers created the country, they were looking for something a little bit more compassionate, something that actually was something where everyone had the opportunity to win and that the st- game wasn't stacked against some people and positioned for success for other people. And that's why we kind of we landed on the term compassionate capitalism because there is the belief that if we're all thriving, we're all doing great then we're all much more productive thereby we can all thrive more and do even better it doesn't have to be that just a certain percentage of the population can be living amazingly while you know 90 some percent of the population is struggling what was the statistic we heard today the top 1% has as much money as the next 60%, 60%. that is ridiculous and that's a huge this disparity the, it, of
0: wealth only recently has the value or the net worth of the top 1% Eclipse the total all of the middle class in the United States So the top 1% have more money more value than all of the middle class right and It's not gonna be much longer. They're gonna be able to sweep in that next 40% so we're kind of trying to do a bit of a reframing of capitalism
4: like you Can't just call it capitalism because right now that that defi- that the definition of that in most people's eyes is kind of perverted But there is a compassion definition version of that and that's what we're trying to push I know that there's a lot of talk about socialism and other kind of economies and we're not dogmatic about anything but we do think that capitalism capitalism is the best one that's out there so maybe a little bit of reframing and getting a little bit more um, back to the true definition would help more people
1: and in practice how does that look differently like i understand that you know these people are making so much more money they're you know they have so much stock in these companies that are valued so high and so that way they're you know their net worth is growing so much faster than the middle class but Tactically, what does that look like?
4: Tactically, that looks like more companies that have CEOs like Gravity Payments, where he's willing to say, I don't necessarily need to earn $35 million a year so that I can live in Beverly Hills and have 12 homes and fly to outer space. um, And all of my employees (laughs) can, can, can struggle. It's that I have a salary that's commensurate to the performance of my company. But I'm also taking care of my employees so that they can also thrive because they want to have a good quality of life. They also want to get married, have kids, live in nice neighborhoods, send their kids to good schools. Not just me and my desire to fly to space. That's what that looks like tactically. And unfortunately, the economy is not necessarily set up that way right now. Um, All the onus, all the focus is is put on shareholder value. In that duration, David and I have strategically invested accordingly, and we've been the recipients of that focus on on the stock market. But I think tactically, it's it's more CEOs, more boards saying, you know, we got to take care of our employees because if our employees are happier, they can produce better, they can be more innovative. And if our ploy- employees can do all that better and they can also earn more money, then they have more money to spend in the economy and they can <laughs> buy more of the stuff that we're making. <laughs> but that's not happening. And we're kind of, excited about the fact that there's this great resignation going on, because that's really the only way, I think, as a society, that the middle class can take back its power is to say, we're not going to put up with this garbage situation anymore. Things have to change. And so we're hoping that this is just a fluke and it's something that continues till there's actual a fair correction.
0: I'll just throw in the reason why we love that story about the CEO of Gravity so much is because he looked at his employees and he said... What would it take for every single employee here to be able to make the amount of money that would give them a quality of life that allows them to come to work feeling that they can do their best. So he made it a goal to have everyone in his company make at least $70,000. I mean, we're talking about the janitors, the people who clean the office, every single person, right? Makes at least $70,000. What was interesting is in the time period that he did that, his company grew by 300% since he did that, his company grew. And it was kind of, he said it was kind of slow growth before that, but all of a sudden he's retaining employees. Those employees are coming in with great ideas and it has caused explosive growth in his company. And I think if more CEOs were to take the pedal off the shareholder and put it on employees, they would start to experience that kind of growth as well
2: compassionate capitalism give and you (laughs) shall receive right right well we could chat with you guys for a couple more hours but we are nearing the end of our time i know you have an amazing amount of resources written audio just everything free guides for those people who want to connect who want those next steps who may be struggling who may be trying to figure a way out of their situation where are some of the best places where they can connect with you guys and get some of those resources
0: our website, our primary website is DebtFreeGuys.com. And we do have a tool there that is designed to help people with that debt lasso method that we talked about. We also, because of our engagement and desire to help the LGBT community, we have the Queer Money Podcast. So those are our two primary tools of helping folks. And almost on every social media, that's where you're going to find us. It's either going to be at DebtFreeGuys or at Queer Money Podcast or Queer Money Pod.
1: Well, John, David, thank you both so much for coming on the show and giving us your unique perspective. And thank you for all the the good work you're pushing for out there. Thank you. Thank you so much for this
4: opportunity. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. And we appreciate that you guys uh, gave us an invitation to come on your platform.
0: We appreciate exactly. It. We're thankful that you do allow us to have the opportunity to share this kind of information, especially about the LGBT community with other folks, because there aren't a lot of outlets that are talking about this. And so we really do appreciate the opportunity to do that.
1: And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The FI Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com resources. And thanks for listening.